Turn with me in your Bibles this week to the book of Hebrews. I'm always excited when we come to a new study. Hebrews is one of my favorite books of the Scriptures to study. I had a professor in college who did much of his doctoral work on translating this book, and we were exposed to it in college, and then I had an occasion to study it through the years. And it's a book I've been anxious to be able to bring to you, the people of God, as a new exposition through this book together. I will tell you that today is going to be devoted to an introduction. That's not always the most exciting thing I realize, but it's necessary when you're talking about Hebrews. Hebrews is a very complex book. If someone tells you it's easy or uh, it's just simple to understand, they're either, they're either lying to you or they haven't really studied it because it is a complex book. And the reason why it is for most of us today is that we are not Jewish uh, listeners per se. Uh, it was addressed to the, the early church, very early church, most of which was Jewish. And the particular church that this goes to originally is probably mostly Jewish converts. So uh, for us who are somewhat ignorant of the Old Testament, uh, it can be very difficult to understand the illusions that the author of Hebrews continues to make. So that's not an excuse for us. It just means that we need to roll up our sleeves and work harder at understanding and going back and searching out where these illusions come from so as to best understand what this book is teaching. I think we lose much of what we read from Hebrews today because we don't do the work of going back and seeing what it is that's behind these statements that are mentioned by the author. There are several concepts I want to introduce you to or remind you of as we go along. One of those concepts is a concept of covenant. Covenant is important. You hear us use that term often. The covenant people. You are the covenant people. Then there is a distinction to be made. We speak in terms of the elect and in terms of the covenant people. They are not necessarily equal. The elect is that mysterious uh, population that God chooses by his sovereign will, unconditional. You don't do anything to get elected. Before the foundation of the world, he chooses some to save. That's the mysterious will of God. It's the true will of God. We know that from the scriptures. Now, the way he brings his elect into time and space is through the covenant. So there's a covenant made, and the covenant people bear the elect. It doesn't mean that everybody who's in the covenant community is elect. That's only shown by perseverance. That's what Hebrews is talking about. Oftentimes people read Hebrews and say, wait a minute, they're losing their salvation. How can the elect become the non-elect? That's not what it's about. It's about the covenant community and persevering in the faith as a means to show election, to prove election. Really, it does little good to sit around and wonder who's elect, because we'll never know that until we are in heaven. But it does great good to question how it is that God's working in me to make me persevere in the faith, because that's something he promises to do. It's a very, very practical book. But see it in the perspective it is meant to be seen, the covenant community which you are a part of. The Jewish people understood that immediately. It was a direct transference from the old covenant to the new covenant, not a brand new covenant, but a better covenant, a fulfilled covenant, but still the covenant community. One people of God, one covenant. Hear God's word, Hebrews 1, verse 1 and verse 2. Two of the most glorious verses in all of the scriptures. In fact, let's say this together. You have it there in the version I'm reading on your outline. Let's, let's read God's word together, these two verses, with me. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Let us pray. Father, we are so grateful for Jesus. He's the heir of all. Everything is his, God. 
We praise you for this. Lord, we are your covenant people. Teach us by this, your covenant book. And I pray, O oh Father, that we would be encouraged in our walk as we begin to study this wonderful, beautiful, Christ-centered sermon. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The opening two verses tie together 2,000 years of biblical revelation and place it all squarely under the supreme lordship of Jesus Christ and no one else. I'm calling this introductory sermon an introduction to a Christ-centered sermon. I want to point out to you that this is, in fact, what all sermons ought to be about. Uh, The crafting could be different. The focus might be just a little bit shifted as far as particular application. But every sermon to be a biblical sermon must be Christ-centered. There is a lot of preaching today. In fact, I did that the kind of preaching, which I'm speaking against at this moment, for the first part of my ministry for sure. And most of us fall into it as preachers from time to time. Why? Because it's easier. Moralism is what I'm talking about. It's much easier for me to get up and beat you on the head about all the things you should be doing and telling you to try harder, work harder. And I might elicit some change in you for a while. But if it is not ultimately rooted in the finished work of Christ, you will eventually fall. And I will not have helped you. I may feel powerful a little while, get some people feel guilty on their way out, but I have not presented Christ. And I have not given you any real hope. A Christ-centered sermon tells you what to do, but it tells you in light of what is true, which is Christ. And it's always Christ. It's never just do this, do that, and do the other thing with no connection to Christ. It's always rooted in what Christ has already done and now your response to what he has done. That's Christ-centered preaching. Hebrews essentially says this, brothers and sisters. If Jesus is the best of all the prophets, and he is, if he's the best of all the prophets, we ought to obey his word because it's truth. If Jesus is better than the angelic host, and he is, We ought to do what he says. If Jesus is the very son of God who provides heavenly rest, we ought to heed his instruction now in this life. Why do we do what we do? Because of who Jesus is and what he has done. If Jesus is the best of all the priests, as the book declares, because he is the supreme sacrificer and the supreme sacrifice once for all, he deserves our loyalty and devotion. Do you see what a Christ-centered sermon is? (coughs) It tells us what to do. Yes, it does. Absolutely. But it also tells us whose power we have to accomplish it. It gives us standards and clear instruction for obedience without question. But it does so in the light of Christ. It always gives Christ as the one who has finished the work. It never leaves you thinking, if you don't do this, God won't love you. Because you know Christ has already done it. Now you should go forth and do it because Christ has completed it for you. Motivation is entirely different. It's Christ-centered. That's what Hebrews is. If you just take one verse out, you might be scared. Hebrews warns us against falling away. But it never says that without the context of Christ's high priestly work, his finished, complete work. It never says that without that in view, without it rooted to that. I want you to think in terms of what non-redemptive or non-Christ-centered preaching might be so that you better understand and grasp this as we study Hebrews. You may think I'm belaboring this, but I'm telling you that most, if not half the preaching you hear today is moralism. It is not Christ-centered. I know it's from Christians and they're well-meaning brothers and sisters in some occasions, but it is not, it is not Christ-centered. I know, I did it. And I probably slip into it at times. In fact, I had this very humbling experience happen two weeks ago. 
went back to visit my mentor, Pastor Ben, who's in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, a church there. I did an internship there when I was 20. And very cruelly, they taped the sermons that I preached when I was there. <clears throat> I went into his office, and he had this tape sitting on there, and I saw it. Right away, I knew what it was. I was, like, staying away from it like it was, you know, radioactive. And I saw a 1992 in how to something. I don't know what it was. That, that's, that's usually your first surefire giveaway. It's not going to be Christ-centered when it's how-to whatever. Or seven steps to doing this. Or ten ways to do that. So I see how-to, and, and he's all happy. And he says, Tony, look what I found. I said, thanks a lot. You can keep that in the, in the church. Fire. No, let's, I want you to have it. Go listen to it. You gotta, no, that's okay. I'm not interested at all. Uh, no, can you, no, really, I want you to listen. This is great. No, uh, I'm not interested, Pastor Ben. Really, I'm not. Can you put it back in the desk? Oh, we'll take it with us on our way to lunch, and we'll put it in the tape deck. Now, I'll tell you, I've only listened to maybe a total of seven minutes of any one sermon I've ever preached, partially because you, you just sound, it's, it's embarrassing when you hear your voice. It's, hi, hi, I talk too much, too fast, too much, everything like that. So I don't listen to them often. I've only had to recently because the production company will ask you to review portions of it. It's, it's painful for me personally, so I can't imagine what it's like for you at any rate. So I'm listening to this little tape in his car, and I'm grimacing over there. And he's kind of proud, like an older brother in the Lord that has helped me. And I don't know if he's proud of the fact that, look at how far you've come, or it's a matter of uh, just excited to see that he had one of the first sermons I'd preach in a church that would sit and listen. And uh, I listened to it, and it, it hurt for this reason. And it wasn't because I was a young preacher, and I needed to learn. And some of you all knew me, even early, <clears throat> earlier on here. It's not like I've been preaching that long. But it's so easy to just fall into. The Bible says this, so just do it. Come on, do it. And that's kind of what it was. It was this whole thing about, you know, how to live your life better. I forgot exactly what the, the, the goal was. It didn't matter. It was just all pouring it on. I thought the person who listened to this would walk away and say, yeah, what he said was in the Bible. But man, how could I ever do that? It's way too heavy. I can't bear up under that. And it probably would have produced some results for a couple of weeks just because they kept feeling guilty about what I said. But in the end, it wasn't Christ empowering them by his finished work. It was my heavy hand with the scripture. I think a lot of preaching is like that today. A lot of it is like that. I know I did it myself. You know, pick yourself up by your own bootstraps. You know, sola scriptura is one of the cries of the Reformation. Sola bootstrapa is the cry of most preaching today. Work harder, try harder, do better. Ten steps to do a better this or that. Do this or that thing or behavior and you will get yourself right with God. That's man-centered preaching and it's always, always vain. The deadly bees, as one of my professors used to say, be like Daniel, be like Moses, be like Billy Graham. How painful is that? I know it makes for a good outline, but be like Moses? Is that who we're to be like? Is that what Moses would say be like? He'd say be like Christ. That's Christ-centered preaching. Be better. Be good. How about this? Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't do this. That is not Christ-centered. Be more disciplined. Pray more. Read your Bible more. Go to church more. That's why you have the problems you have. You're not reading your Bible more. You're not going to church more. You're not disciplined. You're not praying more. You know, such platitudes are apart from Christ. They ultimately are are in vain when they're done on their own without an understanding for why they're done, no matter how moral they appear. These kinds of sermons are not just sub-Christian messages. They're not just sub-Christian, brothers and sisters. They are anti-Christian messages. 
because it robs all the glory from Christ's finished work. And it makes it sound like you can do something to commend yourself to God. You can't. What you can do is live in response, thankfully, for what Christ has done for you. That's the book of Hebrews. That's the call. That's every biblical sermon that should be preached. Let's look together in an introductory way at this book, because we're going to spend some considerable time studying this call to commitment or plea for perseverance. Understand, first, there is much debate about who wrote Hebrews. I really debate about how much time to spend with this, but people ask me constantly about this whenever I teach it. Who, who, do, you think, who do you think wrote it? Who do you think wrote Hebrews? Now, if it really matters what I think, I'll share with you where I lean. But I want to stress with you, stress to you that I don't think it's possible to say for sure who wrote Hebrews. Now, you'll get every range, won't you? From those who say Paul absolutely wrote Hebrews to Paul absolutely didn't write Hebrews all across the spectrum in between. In fact, Paul has to be given a strong, strong vote for being the potential author of this book. After all, he has already written 13 books out of the 27 New Testament books. Hebrews has a remarkably Jewish flair to it, just as Paul would give. Yet there's a knowledge of the Greek culture that is also clear. Paul would definitely qualify for this. He's a scholar. This would have taken someone very studious in in understanding, especially the Old Testament. Certainly, Paul qualifies for this general description. Interestingly, several early transmissions of the biblical text, the Greek text, added to it, and I stress added to it. It wasn't in the original. (coughs) The epistle of Paul to the Hebrews. That really caught on. So by the time Augustine was there, it was pretty much a given that Paul must have written this. It was only called into question again when the manuscripts were gathered and some of the earliest manuscripts didn't have that as a heading for the book. But Paul still has to be given a strong, strong vote of confidence for being the author of the book. Now, what do I think? Again, for what it's worth, I think there are serious problems with thinking that Paul wrote this book. I don't think it's a problem if he did write it, but I think it's probably not the case. And let me just tell you why. Simply put, the Greek just isn't Paul's in my opinion. If you hold Hebrews up to Ephesians in the Greek text, they look different, they style different, they even reference different versions of the Greek, New Te- or Greek Old Testament. So just the Greek alone, to me, seems to lend towards a different writer. But I'll grant you it's a different style of writing, so it's possible Paul could have used it in a different way, his Greek. But there's a verse within Hebrews that really lends me to believe that it's probably not Paul. Look at Hebrews 2, verses 2 and 3. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Now look at the next phrase in verse 3. It was declared at first by the Lord. So the Lord gives revelation. It was attested to us. It was attested to us by those who heard. So we know the apostles or the prophets were the ones who received revelation from the Lord then the apostles and prophets gave that revelation to the church. So it seems as though this is indicating that the person who's writing this received his information from the apostles and wasn't necessarily apostle himself. That would rule out Paul. And Paul also says in Galatians, with regard to receiving revelation, he says, for I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel was preached by me. It is not man's gospel, For I did not, Paul says, I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. This is key. Paul was not one of the original 
disciples who walked with Jesus and became apostles. He was met by Jesus on the road to Damascus, met him personally, and then we are told that he had other cases of special revelation given to him by Jesus directly. It's hard for me to imagine Paul saying that he heard the message from the apostles when he's continually declaring himself to be an apostle. In fact, that's another point in favor of non-Pauline authorship, and that is, in all of Paul's 13 epistles, he names himself as the author and usually as an apostle. In Romans, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. Corinthians, both books. Paul, called to be, called by the will of God to be an apostle. Galatians, the opening verse in this very early epistle of Paul. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor from through man, but through Jesus Christ. Ephesians, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and it's true for all of his epistles, he names himself. So I doubt very highly that it is Paul. Some would say it was Barnabas, a close friend and ministry partner of Paul. This is certainly, certainly meets the Jewish-Greek uh, profile we might be looking for. Perhaps Luke. One person suggests, and I don't know where they get this, but it seems to have stuck, that Luke may have been the writer just penning a sermon that Paul preached. Silas is given some credit. Priscilla's even given a shout-out at one point by some in church history. What do I think if it matters? I think that it's not Paul. It's someone likely like Apollos. Why Apollos, Tony? You just picked that one out to be different? Well, maybe a little bit. But it was certainly capable. Apollos was certainly capable of fitting the, the description of one who would write this book. Turn to Acts chapter 18. Acts 18, verse 24 through 28, introduces this man, Apollos. I think he fits the profile. Now, Barnabas might as well. Silas could. But Apollos, there seems to be a special mention of him in this book in Acts 18, 24 through 28. Hear about Apollos. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in the spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. Notice where he's speaking to Jewish audiences. He knew the scriptures. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained him the way of God more accurately because he had heard everything he had heard from John the Baptist. Not a bad source. Nevertheless, verse 27. And when he, w- he uh, wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who, were, who through grace had believed. And look at verse 28. This is my vote for Apollos. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ, or literally, the Messiah, was Jesus. So there's a good possibility a guy like Apollos wrote the book of Hebrews, given this description. But what is not in question, what is absolutely not in question, is that Hebrews is part of the corpus of God's revelation. It's part of the scriptures. It was accepted immediately by the apostolic community as the very word of God. And so it is for us today, the most important answer to our question, who wrote Hebrews? God did. And that's why we study it. What is Hebrews? It's an important question. It's not really a letter. It's not an epistle per se, although it is addressed to people or a church like our letters often are. It starts more like an essay, reads like a sermon, closes maybe like a letter, but it's not a letter purely. Hebrews is not strictly poetry, although it's very, very poetic. 
Hebrews is not a historical narrative, although it relays beautiful historical events, unlike any other writer in Scripture. Hebrews is a sermon. It's a call. It's a plea that weaves scriptural revelation throughout it to convince us that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of all that God had been working in the plan of redemption. It's not a replacement of something that was not working, but rather the fulfillment of all. And we see it because of the beautiful weaving of Old Testament revelation in with this picture of the Supreme One, Christ. (coughs) When was Hebrews written? It's important, at least to understand the audience that was receiving this letter. Definitely, it was written before 95 A.D. Clement of Alexandria mentions this in some of his writings. But I would suggest to you the book was written much earlier than that. Most likely before 70 A.D. Probably 66, 65, around the time of the great persecutions of Nero, the burning of the city of Rome in that time frame. I say this because Hebrews refers twice to the ongoing nature of sacrifices that are happening in the temple. Well, in 70 A.D., the temple was completely laid waste. There's nothing left as per Jesus' prophecy that the temple would be destroyed when he prophesied that in Matthew 24 and 25 in the Olivet Discourse. So the temple is destroyed in 70. There's no way sacrifices could happen after that. And yet we read in Hebrews 10, verse 11, every priest stands daily in the present tense at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. So there's the illusion in the book of Hebrews that there's still the ongoing sacrifices happening. It's also much more vivid when you think about the message of Hebrews that the person who's reading it would know that actual sacrifices are still going on while they talk about the final sacrifice of Christ. So it's a vivid illustration that they could draw upon immediately. In fact, brothers and sisters, one of the main things that was haunting this Jewish church was this temptation to go back to Judaism. It was bad enough being a Jew in Rome. But at least they had a little respect for the Jewish antiquity. But Christians, they got a target on them immediately. I mean, they were used to light up the streets of Rome. I mean, they were tortured. They were fed to wild animals. They were ostracized at least. So the Jew who became a believer is like, what did I sign up for? It was bad being a Jew. It's worse being a Christian. I'm going back. I'm going back to Egypt. I'm going back to Judaism. And the writer of Hebrews says, don't. Don't go back. What you have is better. It's the best. It's fulfilled. Don't go back. This is why it was written. That's the question that we have to ask. Hebrews, when it is studied, becomes apparent that there's a single message in the book of Hebrews. It's a covenantal message. Please hear me on this. It's a covenantal message. You will never understand Hebrews if you don't understand this. You are part of a covenant community. It's called the church. Just because you're part of the church does not mean that you're elect. Your election is made sure by your perseverance. That's what Hebrews says. Don't think if you go back to Judaism, the writer says, that you're still okay. That you can just renounce Christ and then just be all right. No, persevering to the end, that's what shows what's true. That you really are saved. Bailing out shows you're not. And you will be lost. It's harsh, but it's important. Because it's such a statement to the world about Jesus when people who claim to be his and people say are his and they bail out on him. The church is declaring, don't assume those people are really saved. Don't assume they really are unless they persevere. It's a call to perseverance based on the power of Christ in you. 
How is it to be understood in this light? It's an exhortation. It's a call. It's a sermon to commit by the power and sufficiency of Christ. I want you to consider for a moment, if we would just do a quick survey, have your Bibles open to Hebrews, and we're going to just look at one line of reasoning the writer uses that will help show you the relationship between our assurance and perseverance. The relationship between Christ and our persevering in him. The word therefore appears 27 times in Hebrews. It's an application word. Therefore, we ought to ask as any good Bible student when we read therefore, what is it therefore? And it's because of something that's written before it. So chapter 1 builds up Jesus as supreme. And then chapter 2, verse 1, look what it says. Therefore, that is in light of all that I've just said about Jesus. We, the covenant community, the church, (coughs) must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. This is a real message. It's not that election is not true. That's true. That's the rock. That's what gives us assurance. But on the daily living that we do, there's this reality that, listen, don't be so sure if you're going to bail or if you're not holding fast or you don't believe this. You know, I get fed up with the question, when did you ask, when did you trust Jesus? Okay, that's okay if what you mean is when did you start becoming aware of Christ's work in your life. But when it's trust and faith is put in some date that you pray to prayer, that misses what scripture asks all the time. Are you holding fast now? That's the question. Do you trust Jesus now? It's wonderful to hear your story. I think it's important. But do you trust Jesus now? Because that's the evidence of perseverance. He's working in your life. Election is not the issue here. Staying faithful in the covenant community, the means to assurance is. Look at Hebrews 3, verses 1 through 6. Same idea. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, talking about their position consider jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession the object of our faith is what he's saying verse 2 who was faithful to him who appointed him just as moses also was faithful in all god's house for jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than moses and much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself what a beautiful picture and we are his house if we indeed Hold fast to our confidence and our boasting and our hope. It puts together trust and faith with perseverance. If you trust and have faith, you'll persevere. You'll hold fast. If you don't hold fast, understand what that means. But holding fast is the fruit of what God does in our lives. Look at verse 12 in in the same chapter. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. They were in covenant. They were in the covenant community. They'd taken the oath of that covenant. But the evidence that they were really part of the covenant as the elect came from their perseverance. You'll think of just a really practical way in which you talk to your children. You say, how do you know that you're going to heaven? And sometimes they'll say to you, they'll say that they know how to say, I trust Jesus. And that's good that we teach them to understand that. But I think it's also good when they say, by obeying him. Now, they don't mean, and I think our kids take this and understand this, they don't mean that they are saved because they obey, but they understand that they are Christians. In fact, it's hard for most small children who are raised in a Christian home to really, sometimes they struggle to know what you mean when you say, of course they believe in Jesus, they'll tell you. They assume that, yeah, I believe in Jesus. But they know that that's empty if you're not obeying. They just know it. They know it goes with being a Christian. 
That's what Hebrews declares. You're in covenant, but the way we know we are one of his is by holding fast. Look at Hebrews 4, verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. He's talking about the church, saying the promise. We know the promise. Let's go after it. Let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Don't get so, don't rest on your laurels here. Just think you're just in because you said something. Look at verse 11 in chapter 4. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. This is practical real world living in the church. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. In verse 14 of the same chapter, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Because of Christ, we hold fast. Hebrews 6, verse 1. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again on the foundation of repentance from from dead works and of faith towards God. Move on, move on, commit is what it's saying. Persevere. Look at Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10, 19 through 23 in the survey of the therefores. Hebrews 10, 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus and by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, And since we have a great priest over the house of God, see the Christ-centered nature, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. This is a call to perseverance when it might seem like it's easier to pitch it, just to throw it in, just to forget it all. It's saying, don't do that. Don't. Persevere. It may look like it's better to go back to the old way, but it's not. What you've been bought with is so much better, so much more glorious. Consider what it is that you've been called to, the great glory that you have been called to. I think finally it is important for us to understand as we begin to study Hebrews that there is an assumption of a proper understanding of the relationship between the Old and New Testaments that is God's covenant people. In fact, I'm going to assume that most of us here today, having grown up in American evangelicalism, probably have a skewed understanding of the relationship between the two. And let me just give you a quiz. This is how you'll know. If you have thought for most of your studied life that the Old Testament has Israel and the New Testament has the church and the two are distinctly different, you would be indicating a misunderstanding of the biblical text. Most of us fall into this because that's the popular theology today. It's not the historical theology. It's not an accurate theology, but it's very popular today. It's easy, that's why, to separate the Old Testament that way from the New Testament, that everything that's in the New is really what applies to us. That's law, this is grace, and all these different dichotomistic words they used to describe to separate the people of God. I'm here to tell you that that is what will lead us down the wrong road in understanding Hebrews. There's one people of God, one, saved by one covenant, which is the covenant of grace, ratified by one ratifier, that is Christ. One covenant, Christ. All who will ever be saved are united under him. 
one covenant. It matters not what national ethnicity you are. It matters not which church you align yourself with. It's how are you related to the ratifier of the covenant. That's the same question I would ask Moses as I would ask someone that lives today. And they would give you the same answer if they gave you the right answer, Christ. It even says in Hebrews that Moses trusted Christ. It's giving us the picture of one covenant. This is critical because we are not taking the Old Testament. We might as well cut it out of our Bibles. Mind you, it's two-thirds of the Bible. If we think that it's only something that tells us what happened in the past and has no moral implication for today. That is not what Christ did when he came. He didn't come to get rid of the Old Testament. He didn't come so there would be a degradation of the Old Testament. He came so that the faith of our fathers, which starts not in Acts 2, but in Genesis 1, so that the faith of our fathers would be fulfilled. Christianity is not the antithesis of Old Testament Judaism. Christianity is the fulfillment of the faith of our fathers. Big difference. And it makes all the difference in how you look at Hebrews and how you persevere in the faith. The same way our Old Testament brothers and sisters persevered. Covenantally. They were brought into covenant, a covenant community. They were given covenant stipulations, the Ten Commandments. We live those out as a means to show that we are God's people. That's no different today than it was back then. We are one people of God, one covenant. This is so critical, brothers and sisters, and so misunderstood. And I think we read a lot of our Bibles, really, with the scissors. Oh, that applies to Israel. That applies to... It all applies to the people of God. So, my spiritual forefathers are not just the reformers. Mine's Abraham. He's my father in the faith. He's your father in the faith. We are his sons and daughters. And it's not just Abraham. It's all those guys that I'd like to disown, but they're my brothers in the faith. Jacob. Yeah, Jacob, the deceiver. And go down the line of the kings. Yeah, they're my brothers too. And my sister, Esther. These are my spiritual spiritual progeny coming this way and my heritage that way. It's all one link through one covenant that God has called us under. This is important. Why is it important, you say? Because I think that if we are faithful or consistent in applying this two people of God mentality, you are reduced to nothing but the writings of Paul. Really? And Paul himself would not call us to that. We have been chosen God's people, one people. We are a covenant community. And that's why when we come to Hebrews and read it, as we come to difficult passages in Hebrew, we understand they're written to the covenant community, the people of God that spans all of redemptive history. So brothers and sisters, this is an introduction. It's not always my favorite practice to spend a whole sermon on an introduction. But I think it's important to lay this groundwork so that we hit the text next week, verse 1, verse 2, and verse 3. We know the backdrop which this book is written. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you that you have revealed that it's the same gospel that is always saved, the same good news, the same covenant of grace that saves all of God's people from all time. And I pray, Lord, as we study Hebrews and we read of our great high priest, that we would be compelled to persevere in the faith for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's respond together by singing the first two verses of 447.